Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 68 is Jungian analyst and author Dr. Cedrus Monte in Zurich, Switzerland. As an undergraduate, she studied fine art with an emphasis on painting and printmaking, and then entered the Chinese Civilization Program at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. She later went on to study dance movement therapy, after which she earned a master's degree in a combined study of archetypal psychology and art from the California State University at Sonoma. In response to a dream she had in 1976, she pursued teachings from Native American and Tibetan Buddhist leaders, instruction from psychotropic medicine healers, including peyote, psilocybin, and LSD, studies and experiences in ritual theater, Bouteau, Reiki and therapy, bioenergetics, transpersonal psychology, and Jungian psychology. Dr. Monte is the recipient of two generous grants from the Susan Bach Foundation in Zurich, where she had the opportunity to research and develop a somatic approach to analytical psychology, which forms the foundation of her current practice. She graduated as a diplomat Jungian analyst from the C.G. Jung Institute in 1996. After practicing in Zurich, she relocated to Taos, New Mexico, where she was in private practice until 2003. She has now returned to Zurich, where she continues to work as an analyst. Her published papers include The Body and Movement in Analysis, in the book Jungian Psychoanalysis, Working in the Spirit of Carl Jung, edited by Murray Stein, In Consideration of Disquiet and Longing for Our Changing World, Perspectives from the Prose and Poetry of Fernando Pessoa, in the book Analytical Psychology in a Changing World, edited by Lucy Huskinson and Murray Stein, and At the Threshold of Psychogenesis, The Mournful Face of God, in the book The Moonlit Path, Reflections on the Dark Feminine, edited by Fred Gustafson. She is the author of Corpus Anima, Reflections from the Unity of Body and Soul, published by Chiron in 2015, and A Memoir of Memories, Remembering the Death of My Mother, published last month by Little Owl Press, and it is the subject of our talk today. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com, where you'll find links to all of Dr. Monte's publications in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, July 22, 2020, through the magic of Skype. Welcome, Dr. Monte. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We're here today to discuss a new memoir that you've just published about the death of your mother. And you had arranged to have a book reading in May on the full moon at the Theater Newmarkt in Zurich. And the reading was to be followed by a buffet and a book signing. But unfortunately, that needed to be canceled due to the pandemic. So I made the offer to have you come on the podcast and do the book reading here with us so that we can share it with all the listeners and 
tell them about this beautiful book. I have it here in my hands. It is, it's gorgeous. It's on exquisite, printed on exquisite paper. And it's really, really lovely. Would you tell us a little bit about how the book came to be? For the first three years after my mother's death, which was five years ago, almost to the day now, um, I was unable to do anything except really mourn her death. We were very close, and um, she lived with me for the last 13 years of her life under the same roof, and so we became even closer. So when she died, it was something that left a huge hole in my heart and in my being. And then after the morning started to soften a little bit, um, the idea, or I don't even know if it was, you can really say it was an idea, it was an impulse to sit down and write. I had taken notes um, of her dreams and some of the things we had talked about during her dying process. But immediately after her death, as I said, I was unable to do very much. But mm -hmm. I knew that something was coming. There was something coming up from um, deep within my own soul, from the unconscious, perhaps you could say, um, to to write about our experience together. You say the book is not a eulogy, rather it's a collection of stories from your time with her during her moving from one state of being into the next, from life into dying, into death. Were you always close? How did it come to be that she lived with you for the last 13 years of her life? Uh, we were always very close, uh, being the only child of an only parent um, and a kind of close-knit um, uh, way of being with uh, a, a, an old European family. Mm -hmm. So always very close. Um, so when I moved back to Zurich, uh, after being away for about five years, she was 80 years old. And I knew that I didn't want to leave her at, at that stage of her life alone mm -hmm. in the United States. So um, I made uh, arrangements. Uh, I had to apply for her to be able to come to Switzerland. I am a Swiss citizen um, by marriage, and so I was able to, to um, make the arrangements bureaucratically for her to come with me. And I, being so close, I couldn't imagine just leaving and never, never seeing her on a regular basis. Yeah. You're American. You're originally from California. Yes. And you wound up in Switzerland at the Jung Institute. How did that come to be? There are always these stories about yeah. how 
it. <laughs> right. Um, well, I guess just the simple answer is uh, I met someone mm -hmm. uh, while I was traveling in Mexico. I was writing uh, my thesis, and he was there on on a grant. Um, he had been given a grant to um, do his artwork, and we met, and I ended up here. Mm -hmm. You dedicate this book to to your mother and to the 16th Karmapa from Tibet. Right. And he is the spiritual leader of the Karma Kagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, he has since passed away. He actually died here in Chicago in the early 1980s. What did he mean to you? Oh, it's interesting to know that he died in Chicago because I know the story of a little bit of his death, but I didn't realize it was in Chicago. So that is interesting, given that you're there also right mm -hmm. now. Um, I met him when I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And um, this was, um, I can't remember the year it was. I, I may have written it down or you know, said, but I don't remember right now. And uh, he came to the United States and Santa Fe was one of his stops. And also important for him was meeting um, elders from the Hopi um, tribe, the Hopi people. And this for the Hopi was the fulfillment of prophecy as they saw it, his coming. And I had always been interested in Tibetan Buddhism in one way or another, and of course the Hopi were also of interest. Mm -hmm. And so um, there were about 300 of us who um, went to a ceremony, the black hat ceremony that he gave. And during that ceremony, um, one could take vows, Tibetan Buddhist vows. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. Um, he was an absolutely magnanimous being, just radiant, very kind. And um, he also came to me in a dream that essentially, I, I, I say it's a dream, but it felt like much more than yeah. a dream. And uh, essentially saved my life because I was able to um, gain enough uh, strength and consciousness to call someone and tell them, I think I'm dying, I need some help. And interestingly, um, it was from the flu. It was a very, very bad flu. Mm -hmm. uh, it was in the early 80s, very early 80s. And people were not recovering very quickly. And um, I didn't know how ill I was, actually, until he appeared and um, and um, prompted me to call. It was my mother, actually, that I had called. Mm -hmm. And she came to you and she nursed you back to health. 
That's right. I was in Oakland, California, and she was in Santa Fe still. And um, she just dropped everything and drove straight out almost nonstop. It's interesting. I too met Tibetan Buddhists when I was in Santa Fe. And that was back in 2010. And they're still with me to this day. Um, There is a very large Tibetan population in Santa Fe. And it is a very spiritual place. So that must have been, that meeting must have been in the 1970s. And we talked a little bit about that on episode Q6 when I had um, a Tibetan Geshe Larampa on the program, Geshe Damcho, and Marika Hensley from Santa Fe uh, talking about when His Holiness the Dalai Lama came to Santa Fe um, and met with the Hopi. I wonder if that's that was the same meeting. Do you remember if the Dalai Lama was there? I don't remember. I this. Do you know when he was there in the seventies? Do you know what? I think he probably came a bit later. Okay. Dalai Lama. But I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I know that uh, um, the Karmapa went to Hopi Land and. Um, I don't recall, I don't think there was any mention of the Dalai Lama being there. Mm-hmm. They're from different lineages, mm. um, but I know that they they both met with the Hopi, and I hope to do an episode about that. Mm. So I was wondering if you wanted to now turn to the book and do some readings, the readings that you had planned on doing in Zurich in May. Would you like to do that now? Yes, that feels right. So we'll start with reading number one. They are short excerpts from two different chapters. This book is a memoir of stories. Stories of being with the dying of a human being. Of my mother. Of the woman from whose body I became incarnate. It is a memoir of the woman that I helped midwife to the other side of life and, as I personally believe, to the beginning of a new incarnation. The French writer Marcel Proust notes, nothing is understood until it is remembered. So perhaps by remembering my mother's death, I simply want to understand more about dying and to pass on that fragment of understanding to anyone who might be interested, no matter how incomplete or imperfect or individual. Perhaps ultimately, as the poet Rilke suggests, I did not want to leave unopened the gifts in life of love and death. Love and death, he writes, are the great gifts that are given to us. Mostly, they are passed on, unopened. I've heard some mothers say that upon giving birth, their hearts broke open with love for their child. I think this breaking open of the heart can also happen at death. It was my mother's dying and death that broke my heart open to her to feeling a love for her 
that I could not fully express when she was alive. Perhaps that too is why I am moved to write and share my experiences of traveling with her up to her last breath, to more fully release this heartbroken open love for her and ultimately for life itself. Carl Jung, as well as others, suggests that the origin and growth of consciousness seems to be connected uniquely with the experience of death, and that perhaps the first suffering to penetrate the dawning of human consciousness, creating consciousness itself, was the contrast between the living and the dead. In other words, it could be said that our beginnings, the origins of human consciousness, arise from the experience of death. To be fully alive, to be fully human, is to die. Death emerges then at the root of our psychic and physical existence. No doubt this is one of the primary reasons for death being the center of all the great spiritual and traditional and religious traditions throughout millennia. In some ways, I have become familiar with different teachings about death, not as a formal study, but as a result of being persistently attracted to this dimension of life. Tibetan Buddhism has been especially important for me in this regard. Zen Buddhism as well. Some of the stories in this memoir will reveal that. My training as a Jungian analyst has not included the death of the physical body, the physical dying process of a human being, nor has it included an understanding of the nature and quality of the psyche as physical death approaches. Analysts do not typically work with dying people, with people who are consciously dying, who are knowingly at the end of their life. So this emphasis in our Jungian training is not there unless specifically pursued. Jung did express, however, the belief that we should understand death as a goal. And to stray away from that goal is to hide and evade life and life's purpose. In this regard, in referring to the importance of death as a goal in life, in moving to capture and explain the quality of the psyche as death approaches, Jung suggests that because the psyche is not bound by the laws of time and space, death is not understood by the psyche as an end. The psyche, he says, pays very little attention to the encroaching and abrupt end of bodily life and behaves rather as if the psychic life of the individual, that is the continual process of, become, of becoming fully who we are, what we call the process of our individuation, simply continues. This suggests that there is no end to our evolution 
right up to the moment of our physical death and perhaps beyond. The tremendous complexity of the psyche led Jung to the belief that attempts to formulate a total and comprehensive theory were not fully possible. However, Jung did determine that dreams are windows into the psyche and that dreams, which are not a product of our will or ego, can show us the state of our psychic life in relation to our individual development. Dreams at death can point to the further evolution of our psyche, of our soul. Just because our physical death is imminent, just because we are at the end of our physical life, does not mean that the soul does not have the intrinsic impulse to stay on its journey toward wholeness. Even at death, in our process of dying, we continue to evolve. I saw this in my mother's dreams during her dying process, some of which I share with you here, as well as how we worked with them, bringing her to a more profound sense of completion. To help illustrate how deep in the human psyche death abides, the ancient Greeks understood that Thanatos, god of death, was born of Nyx, primordial goddess of night. Nyx was born of chaos, the primordial eternal beginnings of time the time before the chronological marking of time, the place of the fertile void out of which all life, all cosmic energies emerge, dissolve, and reemerge, just like quantum physics tells us. Death, Thanatos, emerges then at the root of our psychic and physical existence. Death is born out of the eternal beginnings of time. There are few stories about Thanatos. According to many of the ancient Greeks, he had no altars dedicated to him. There was nothing that could be offered in sacrifice that would appease him. That is, we are all going to die. There's no getting out of it. There's nothing, no offering, no prayer that can appease what we experience as his difficult purpose, his reason for being. There is nothing that can alter his own divine destiny. There are no offerings needed or accepted because he has already given his due by the simple fact that we are born and given life. To be born to be alive is to die. The ancients knew this and praised it within the eternal cycles of time. But in our present day lives, this truth is obscured purposely. We try to hide from it. We fear it. Death is no longer a guest at the table, no longer a natural goal in life full of the gift 
of mystery. So we're not used to really talking about death very openly here in our society. And you said that dying is shunned and essentially denied by much of the modern world. Why is that, do you think? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I've asked that myself of people um, because for some reason, I don't know what that reason is, um, as, I, as I mentioned in the reading, I've always been attracted to that dimension of life. Um, even in my 20s and 30s, I thought I would want to work with a dying, um, a hospice. Um, there were and are still um, hospices, the Zen hospice um, in San Francisco that became very famous. Um, and I thought it would be wonderful to volunteer to do that, but I, I never did. Um, I did this instead, I guess. Right. Um, um, so I think when I did ask um, at a Tibetan Buddhist gathering, a small gathering uh, of um, 
people who um, we all watched a, a, a film on on death and dying. It was very personal. Um, it wasn't uh, philosophical or uh, didn't have anything to do really with Buddhist teachings, but it was presented by a Buddhist nun um, who had done a lot of work with the dying. I asked other members of the group there what it was that people were afraid of. And one of the uh, young women said, actually, it wasn't just her, but she was the first one to say, I'm afraid of disappearing. And I, I thought that was a very interesting way to um, hold death at, or the fear of death because I thought, well, even if that did happen, there would be nothing to worry about. We would just disappear. And then there is no I or no ego or no, no one, no person there to, to reflect on that or to be afraid of it at death. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm really, I, I mean, I, I, this has been discussed by many um, people um, and giving their reasons for being afraid of it. But I, I think perhaps it's about the unknown, really not being able to determine um, what happens and being afraid of that, yes. being afraid of the unknown. Yeah. People often say they know what something is, and I, I, I'm always a little stunned by that. Uh, my analyst, she would usually encourage me to leave some things at the level of mystery. Mm. And that was very hard for me to do. And I actually still need to be reminded of that. And that's one of the things I got from your book is we don't have the answer to everything and that it is a big mystery. And uh, I have a friend who who has a show and he plays this song at the end of every episode. It's actually Madonna singing Life is a Mystery. (coughs) So it reminded me of that. Would you like to start the second reading? Yes. Okay, this is reading number two. It was very near the end of her life, perhaps two weeks, one week, three weeks. Time was essentially relative during her dying. She was sitting in the antique green velvet upholstered chair that was hers exclusively now, next to the hospital bed in the middle of the living room. She preferred the chair to the bed. She sensed a greater feeling of autonomy in her diminishing life force. At this point, she was in and out of earthly lucidity, fully conscious, but on the threshold of a liminality that included both life and dying in the same moment. Out of the blue, looking at me intensely with the urgency of a truth she wanted to communicate before she died. She said three things to me, three short sentences of three 
words each that were all canticles of incantation, three songs of praise to the mystery of the life we had shared together. The first canticle, we did it. The first three words came out like a precipitous birth with suddenness, unattached to anything other than itself, unattached to anything that came from what happened the moment before. We did it, she announced. Something in me knew better than to ask what we did, what we had done. It was both a mystery and yet something I understood immediately, at once, with no explanation needed. In the liminality of her physical state, in the shifting realities of her mind, she had gone right to a core experience of our life together. When she said, we did it, I immediately responded in kind. We did it. Yes, we did. Her eyes widened with almost childlike wonder at my response. In that same moment, her face held the expression of the next song of praise to come forth, the next sacred incantation. But before I describe what she said next, in that moment of we did it, she helped us realize together to confirm to each other that in spite of all the challenges and hurt and experiences of eruptive anger that we had experienced with each other, in spite of all the lack of forgiveness and chaos that our life together had been at times, we did it. We found a way through to creating a family, small as it was, where we could communicate with each other in openness and to use her word, with ingenuity. In spite of our early ignorance and lack of enough awareness about projections and resentments, we had somehow carved out a place of compassion. We were here together without veneer. She was dying and I was with her dying, trying to do the best I could to keep her safe and protected and with a complete desire to do so. We managed to make some small gold out of the dark night of the soul that we had traversed together, and not only once, but many times, fighting, screaming at each other, blaming, accusing, condemning, sometimes without apparent mercy. We were extremely close. Being the only child of a single parent can create a bond that is a double-edged sword. The closeness creates a connection that is the strength of steel. And that strength can carry within it the desire to be free of that connectivity, to be free of not enough space between two lives. 
This was our apparent karma, our handed out homework from the great teacher to solve this paradox of creating space where there was almost no space to be had. We had learned, I believe only by grace, how to get past most of all that. It was without question a most unenviable path, a difficult karma, an unwelcome and unsought spiritual strengthening. But it was unavoidably ours to work through. We, neither of us, were afraid of the dying, her dying, dying. Perhaps unconsciously, this was in part due to the feeling that we did it. We worked through some of the hardest, most hurtful times life can offer parent and child. All we had really was each other, she knowing that more profoundly than I. And in that knowledge, she had realized that there could be no lies bringing us ever closer, she began to respond to my demands of youth speaking to power. She became more open and honest and truthful to herself and to me. There could be no falsity between us. It would all, our family of two, fall apart if there were. We had to come clean again and again. No denial of transgression, no matter what the cost of momentary shame for our spiritual incontinence. For many, including my mother and I, it is not always evident how to do that, how to come clean, especially in the early decades of one's life. But we did it, somehow. She was brave, she was constant. I was insistent, forging. Somehow, out of that combination, almost miraculously, we did it. After years and years and years of working through these leaden, and emotionally lethal experiences. And then, after living together under the same roof in later life for 13 years, the dross of gold began to fall away, but never completely, not until the dying time, her dying, which then ignited my own dying a dying that allowed the ever-deepening release of my own tightly-held sense of betrayal as a child, until the sense of betrayal dissolved away with the waters of compassion. So without asking for details or explanations, which I knew were beyond her at this stage, I knew exactly what she meant and could only agree with all my heart we did it, I replied. We had indeed found a way through to living. 
with my eyes shining back into hers, we reach together to that place of sacred connection, a connection that can grow as love deepens and death approaches ever closer. For me, death, her death, has been the greatest mystery of all in life, the greatest living paradox. The loss is literally unfathomable. There are no depths at which the experience of loss ends. And yet through it, I've gained what I could never have imagined of love and life. Would you talk a little bit about the relationship that you had in that you you explain in the book that you didn't want to give the impression that you had this peaceful relationship with your mother your whole life. You talk about the time up until you were about 23 years old, what your childhood was like. I only bring it up because you mentioned in this reading, the arguing. Mm-hmm. And 
sometimes I wonder, you're a Jungian analyst. You're you're arguing with someone? How could that be? How could that happen? Before I was a Jungian. No, it happened all throughout our life, yeah. actually. I wanted you to share with the listeners that you did have some tumultuous time with your mother. Yes. Um, I mean, as I said, it was it was always tumultuous. Um, it, there was always tumult present. Um, it wasn't always um, active. But we were both very um, strong-willed, um, strong-headed. We each had a, a little bit of nitroglycerin in our blood, mm-hmm. shaken the wrong way, and... You know, there's a kind of a, a reaction. But we also um, were able, and I say by grace, um, we were able to somehow use that as grist for our own um, evolving. And um, I, my mother... Um, went on uh, after she retired. She retired early at 53 or 55. Um, She went on to study psychology, and um, she was very interested in Jungian psychology, but there were others that were more prominent um, in her interests. Uh, So we grew together through all this. Mm -hmm. And... um, I, but I didn't want, you know, the, the writing can, what I've read can sound a bit idyllic in some way, um, but, and I didn't want that to uh, sound like or, or to mean that there wasn't pain, that right. there was conflict as well. I am an arguer. I am a yeller. I am a screamer. I am 100% full-blooded Italian, not to stereotype, but that is a way, I think, of bringing things up to the surface, bringing things up out of the depths to the surface so that they can be seen, looked at, talked about, worked on. And it I find it necessary. I find it helpful. And not everybody has the strength to stay with relationships that are tumultuous. I hear a lot of people say that that ends will end a relationship. What would you say as a Jungian analyst about that part of some relationships that that energy, that disagreement, that working through. Well, I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that um, maybe for some people it is absolutely not their way. Mm-hmm. Um, that has to be granted. Um, but that is a human energy. I mean, even, you know, just at the archetypal level, you can see different um um, typologies that include this as part of um, the human psyche. Um, 
I'm thinking right now of astrology, for example, Mars. Yeah. Um, or, but uh, without that energy, things do not get pierced open. Things do not break through. It's needed. Um, what's important is, at least from my perspective, is to work with that and to not let it overcome one all the time. Um, my mother and I always, as well as the people I have been closest to, mm-hmm. um, have always had that present in our lives, but have used it to grow. Yes. It wasn't easy. It wasn't comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um and it was one of the best ways, in my experience, to deepen the connection at a very authentic and real level. Mm-hmm. And so she was interested in psychology, and so that may have been helpful, I would imagine, to your relationship that you could talk on that level about what was going on. And perhaps later we'll get into the dreams that she had, that she shared with you. I mean, a whole thing could be, a whole hour could be on that. And I think it it, it is extremely valuable because um, like death, anger is also shunned and not really um, held in the esteem that I personally feel it can be held. Reading number three. As I entered the caretaking of my mother, I began to realize I did not have the experience of the actual dying process, of the process that one goes through as one starts to leave their body. Fortunately, one of my dearest friends in the States knew a little, more than a little, and she helped in ways that were critical to my understanding of what was happening. I had no energy to research this on my own. It was all I could do to keep the wheels of daily duties turning and to get enough sleep to carry on. The following is part of an email exchange I had with my friend. I think you'll get the idea. I wrote, Last night, my mother tried, again, to get out of bed past the guardrails I put up every night so she doesn't fall out of bed. And this time, she succeeded, right flat to the floor. No broken bones. Did I tell you this already? I can hardly remember my name at the moment. I had to get her up off the floor, onto her feet, and back into bed. It was three or four in the morning. Thank God she is so short, though still 120 pounds. She is now accepting a light injection of morphine in the evening that helps her drop into a deeper sleep. 
on the night she fell out of bed, I got about two hours sleep, I think. She can't help it. Like the information you sent said, she is trying to leave her body, to get out, to go. Yesterday, swinging from the post at the foot of the bed, screaming in her delirium, hit the gas, let's go for a ride. An analogy true to her love of travel. After reading what you sent, it all makes so much sense now. Tearing away at her body saying, take it off, take it off. She had already taken off her nightgown and was stark naked. So I kept telling her she had nothing on. She stared at me blankly and then with a growing look of frustration. As if to say, you don't get it, do you? Now I realize it's the struggle to shed the mortal coil. At some point in all this, or maybe the next morning, time collapses in this process. She told me a dream about twins who were very, very close. They were each trying to kill the other, each twin killing off part of the other twin. Horrible, she said. We talked about it in the kind of obscure lucidity she is in now rather permanently. Thinking in perhaps too symbolic, rational terms, I asked her what she couldn't let go of with one twin trying to kill the other. She took her little forefinger and touched my chest where the heart is. You, she said. Sometime after her dream, we had a deeply moving exchange about her dying, about hanging on. I spoke quietly into her ear as she lay there and let her know I would always be with her and that she would always be with me. An amazing, almost mystical event, lucid and beyond lucid, which is her current state. Later, she said she dreamt that she had died, but woke up, and there we were again. She knows she is hanging on to something and cannot let go. She is simply not finding a way through. We go ever deeper in our connection here on Earth as she gets closer and closer to the other side. My friend responded. How intense it all sounds. It must be so unreal to hear your mother say things like, take it off, like a snake trying to shed its skin. About the dream of the two twins fighting, I'm guessing that has to do with the soul and the body the odd couple marriage we work so hard to maintain throughout life, which has to be undone at death. A separation occurs, 
a leave-taking, and perhaps it is experienced like one side killing off the other. It must be so arduous, exhausting, but it must also be amazing to be there by her side, up close and present, as your mother's soul labors to leave this body, this mortal life. It's like you have a ringside seat at ultimate reality. It is so very poignant that your mother lets you know the one thing keeping her tied to earth is you, her most beloved one. That's a mighty strong love, and I know you feel it for her as well. It must be an agony, and perhaps an ecstasy too, to feel this love as it asserts itself in the face of death. And her final dream. There were great tribes that were fighting to the death. The leader of one of the tribes was mortally wounded, but he found a way to get his wife, his bride, to a very safe place so that she would not be harmed by the opposing, warring tribe. Then it was in this safe place that they both died together. This is just as she spoke it to me. We didn't discuss this dream as we had the others she shared with me. We simply sat there together. She in her lucid delirium, me in my ever encroaching and increasing grief. She had been delivered to her safe place, the safe place she had sought since coming home to die.
did you feel when you asked her about the dream about the twins and she pointed at you? Well, I'm surprised I didn't start um, weeping when I read it this time. I'm, I have, I think, almost every other time. Oh. Before. Yeah. Um, I mean, in spite of everything, uh, there was a love there that was true. And that's what I felt. I felt the truth of our love together mm-hmm. and her love for me. When I read that, at first I was a little taken aback by it, and then I realized, okay, look at this symbolically, and not literally. And so it all fit, and it all made sense. You often uh, discussed her dreams together, right? Yes. Was that something that you had done your whole life with her or just there toward the end? Well, since becoming an analyst, so maybe let's say starting in, um, I mean, it was before I actually became an analyst, but, uh, you know, uh, formally. So let's say maybe starting in the early 90s. She was open to that. She wanted to discuss her dreams with you. Absolutely, yeah. We were actually, I have to say, best friends. Mm -hmm. She was my best traveling buddy. Um, I could tell her anything. She could tell me anything. Uh, It it was a whole panoply of experiences, emotional experiences that we shared together. Mm -hmm. And would you look at her dreams analytically? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, as best as I could. Um, in the beginning, um, it, it, it wasn't, I mean, I think one grows with being able to um, look at dreams yeah. and see what they mean. Um, and it's also not so easy to do it with someone who's really close to you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you mentioned that in the book. Would you say a little bit more about that? Um, I don't know. It's the the objectivity, I guess, um, is slightly blunted, um, or the insight may be um, clouded a little bit by um, the actual relationship. It's not the same as doing it with someone that you are not deeply emotionally involved with. and there were times when I, I really didn't, this is before, before this dying process, there were times when I, I wasn't able to penetrate um, to the meaning of her dreams. Um, but there were times that it was um, a very special experience to be able to offer a reflection and insight through the dream in that way. Mm. 
I thought it was interesting when you mentioned that she's trying to leave her body to get out, to go. And when someone is dying and is, it's kind of, they, they know it's coming. Everybody around them knows it's coming and they go on day after day after day. And sometimes it's agony. Was she in agony? Were you in agony? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, agony. She was never in pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, she'd had a stroke. Um, actually, it was her second stroke in two years. So, um, and then her life force, just her heart. She she had congenital. Uh, uh, is that right? Congestive heart failure? Um, congestive heart failure, yeah, thank you. Um, so she just became weaker and weaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, that really the amazing thing of um, being in this kind of lucid, lucid, I use that word a lot in, yeah. <laughs> In the, in the reading and in the book, because there was something that that was that was deeply lucid and present and conscious, and she was dying. That the life force was leaving her. The agony was seeing how difficult it was for her to move through. It, it, mm-hmm. She wanted to take me to take her clothes off. There were no clothes. Right. Um, she she wanted to leave, but she couldn't leave. Wasn't leaving. Didn't. And I think I also wrote in there somewhere that um, my mother, she was an adventurer. She was. Um, the first woman to become uh, a manager for an international corporation. Um, She was responsible for um, ensuring that equal, the equal rights um, uh, amendment passed by Congress in the sixties were um, was uh, enacted within her company. She she helped to do that. She wasn't the only one. She helped promote women uh, and people of color. Um, at that time, it was a big deal yeah. into um, managerial positions or into prom- promotion. She was she was always pushing the envelope to help make uh, the world better and for the common good. And she was the first person in her family of nine children, actually the only one, to travel abroad, um, going back to uh, the homeland of uh, her, her parents and traveling all over. And where was she from? Uh, her grandparents, uh, her my grandparents, her parents were from the island of Madeira. She was born in the states, as was I, but her parents uh, emigrated from Madeira in around the turn of the century, in the nineteen hundreds. 
early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Would you tell our listeners who aren't familiar with Madeira where that is? Yes, Madeira is a small island about 300 miles off the coast of Morocco, and it belongs to Portugal. Yes, and you visited there. You stayed yes. with your grandparents there. With um, Not with my grandparents. Uh, I, I was there well after they had left, uh, after they had immigrated. Um, I had stayed, uh, I know what you're, you're speaking of. I stayed with my grandparents in the Azor Islands. Oh, okay, right. Which is where my father was yes. born. And that is also a Portuguese holding. And that is, they are, there are nine islands, about um, 900 kilometers, 600 miles off the coast of uh, Portugal. So it, it lays between, they, they, they lay between Portugal and Nova Scotia, out in the middle of the Atlantic. So the adventure was always ever-present in my mother's being. Mm -hmm. And I think she wasn't, she had a hard time giving up the adventure um, for the next unknown adventure. Even though she wasn't afraid, she, I, I think she always felt that there was something more she could do. There was something more that she could um, give, participate in. So on, on this plane. You've done a lot of work and research on the mind-body connection. What is the psychological aspect of death when the body is, I mean, she, she couldn't walk at the, end, at the end of her life, right? You were taking full care of her. And at the very, very end, she ended up walking um, after she came home. Mm-hmm. But at the very end, when before she died, she was in bed and you were taking care of her. You were doing everything for her, right? And I'm just wondering, from your point of view as a Jungian analyst, what is the connection between the body and the mind and that letting go process, what, I guess I'm wondering about the hanging on and the not letting go. And at what point does the death actually happen? Does that make any sense? I mean, is it, it can't, I don't think anything is just physical. They're they're connected. So what is happening psychologically, I wonder? Does the letting go happen when we're ready? I mean, I I guess I'm wondering what you witnessed. So she was she was wanting to let go, she was wanting to make that transition. And I'm also thinking about other people that I know who and when I had asked you about agony, who are just sort of waiting to, to die, and it's not, death is not coming. Yeah, you know, um, 
I don't know if I am going to pronounce his name correctly. Um, Ostaseski. I've forgotten his first name. He is the one who, um, he's a Zen Buddhist. Uh, he is the one who founded the, uh, one of the first uh, hospices in San Francisco. And they ended up having a, like a 2,000 bed hospital as a palliative care hospice. So he was very familiar with the dying of many different people. And one of the things he said was, or a couple of things, that each death is individual. There are no two deaths alike. Mm -hmm. And that the other thing that I, I found quite striking was dying is hard work. Mm. It can be hard work. Mm -hmm. And I think it just is, you know, how my friend wrote about that. It was also a union analyst, by the way. Um, to, to break that coupling, that twin, twinning, of body and soul is something that we we don't get to practice. Yeah, it's, it, it's we get the, it's that one time, and unless the death is eruptive or you know sudden, being hit by a train or something like that, um, it can be as I've seen it and as I've read and heard, really hard work to uncouple that body and that soul mm. because we don't have the experience of it. We're learning. I saw my mother learning how to do that. It may not have been conscious learning. Sometimes it was. Sometimes in our conversations it was. But then sometimes it wasn't. It was uh, a kind of autonomous process. It's important to know that or to have that as, a, as some kind of knowledge, as knowledge as a possibility, um, so that we don't um, judge uh, the way a person is dying. Mm. It's a really... Um, just like a person's life or a person's being is very individual. I mean, there's only one Laura London. There's only one Cedrus Monte. And life is individual as is the ending of that yes. life. Yes. It, it really, it was surprising, not surprising, but it was, it was, uh, when I listened to him, he's wonderful, Frank Ostaseski, it's a Polish name, I believe, um, he's fantastic. And when you're ready, we'll move on to the last reading, reading number four. Writing about my mother's death and her dying has often been extremely difficult. 
to the extent that I could only write for two to three hours at most at one time, with days and days and sometimes weeks of not writing in between. As difficult as it has been, it has also set me free. It has given me a sense of freedom, the freedom of going through my grief in more or less conscious ways, the freedom of allowing me to lay sorrow down so that the heaviness lightened, the freedom of feeling life as ever more precious. Just a few days after bringing this memoir to a close, I had a dream. A voice, that cosmic voice of the dream world, asked me, how do you feel? I responded, shriven. That was it. That was the dream. Upon waking, I had to look up the meaning of this word, if it even was a word, I was thinking to myself, since I hadn't recalled hearing it ever but it was, it was a real word. Shriven means to have been administered the sacrament of reconciliation, to have been administered absolution, to be freed from guilt. It evolved from the Latin verb scribere, meaning to write, to proclaim. And so there it was, in writing this memoir, by proclaiming these experiences, an absolution from that within us all which absolves. For me, in my own way of seeing, that which absolves is the experience of an unconditional love, an experience of divine love. In the writing, the sacrament of reconciliation had been administered, a reconciliation within my own soul of all my regret in relation to my mother's dying and how I was or was not able to attend to her with impeccable care. Writing has helped me to move toward the next phase of my life and even at 70 to reignite an authentic sense of creativity a creativity that includes what seems to me to be the more essential things, life-redeeming things. For example, understanding more deeply the natural world and what it means to be in it, of it. Doing only what is truest to my deepest intuition at the level of bodily wisdom and what I can grasp of soul. This creativity includes connecting with the world for the sake of being more human, more humane, more thoughtful, especially now as we are on the razor's edge of survival as a species, given the real and imposing environmental crisis, given human greed and the often sadistic cruelty of one human being toward another. It feels to me of utmost importance that whatever we do, 
whatever we create be done from the heart, however much we are able to rise from that place. As I mentioned earlier, in some mystical spiritual traditions, the universe is understood as being comprised of compassion. And this compassion is understood as the ultimate form of consciousness. Within this state of consciousness, within the state of compassion, is the keen awareness of the interdependence of all things, where all of life arises in sacred relation with everything else. In other words, there is no separate arising of any one thing. We are all in this together, every human, every animal, every butterfly, tree, and songbird. And we humans, specifically, need to rise together with all of life in this state of consciousness, in this field of compassion. Death, it seems, is one of the greatest teachers in getting us into this field. Perhaps Laurie Anderson, musician and artist, says it best in some ways. The purpose of death is the release of love. So too, Sogyal Rinpoche, the Tibetan Lama who wrote the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying in 1992, tells us, the purpose of reflecting on death is to make a real change in the depth of your heart. The death of my mother released an outpouring of love in me, from me, for her, toward life. And that's what I hope to return back in whatever way I am able, in word and deed, however flawed it may be. Imagine that, the understanding that the purpose of death is the release of love eight billion times over, which is the number of humans now living on our planet. If we were all indeed able to fully experience, not just in our thoughts, but also and essentially in our blood and bones, deep within our bodies as a fully lived reality, that the purpose of death is the release of love, then there would be little fear about dying. Then our ability to love would thrive. Our ability to love would be inevitable because death is inevitable. Ultimately, love and death could be understood as inseparable. Both love and death together might be experienced as the spark that ignites a more fully awakened consciousness, a more fully awakened heart. 
The kind of love involved here is not simply an emotion. This is the kind of love that can die to always wanting, that can die into what we are given of life and understand whatever we are given as grace, no matter how obscure that grace may seem. To that possible end, perhaps part of the next phase in our evolution on this planet is to embrace both death and love fully, without skepticism, without reticence, and with courage, from an undefended heart, shriven of shield and armor, so that we, so that all of life might fully thrive. And in ending these final words, Here I borrow the words of an ancient Greek, Seculos, from 200 AD, who wrote on the tombstone of his beloved, I, this stone, am an image. Seculos placed me here, an everlasting sign of a deathless memory. And along with these words, the oldest known and complete song is written, As long as you live, shine. Do not grieve beyond measure. Life exists only for a short while. Kronos, time, demands his due. As long as you live, shine. I'm certain my mother would have said the same thing, that she did in fact say the same thing in her own way. She would say it to me and she would say it to all of you if she had the chance. Life exists only for a short while, so for as long as you live, shine. Let your heart be broken open and shine. Dr. Monte. Thank you, Laura. Please visit the website speakingofjung, that's J U N G 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts or tune in. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with special thanks to our friend Lenny Foster and to Chiron Publications, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs>